It's good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We invite you to be taking out your Bibles as we study along from the Word of God. We are going to kind of follow up from last week's uh, study that we had. If you did not, uh, if you were not able to be here last week, I'd encourage you to go back to our website and listen to the sermon. Uh, you might want to save some time. I'm sure you can ask people that it was a little longer than normal, uh, but uh, hopefully it was edifying and helpful in that we were looking at what is called the new creation theology or uh, some of what is called new heavens and new earth, uh, the ideas that are floating around among even some brethren. And we tried to look at some of that and expose some of that in looking at some of the error involved in those things. But what I did not get to do last week was actually get in sort of an affirmative uh, case of what actually will happen when Jesus returns. And I think that would be beneficial for us to know some things that we can nail down of what we can expect to occur when Jesus does come again. And looking at the second coming of Christ and asking what will happen when Jesus returns, what are some of the events that will take place because that is something that people are fascinated about. They want to know what is going to occur when Jesus comes again. What will happen? When will it happen? Those are questions that people ask and that they spend countless hours going back and forth and debating. And how will it happen? What or How is the Lord going to return? Will there be signs that will warn us that it is about to happen, that it is imminent? Other questions that might be related to the topic that we don't have time to get into tonight, so don't be too disappointed if we don't get to explore all of this, but what will happen after we die? What will heaven be like? What will hell be like? And while there are too many areas to explore thoroughly tonight, I do want us to try and provide an overarching idea of what is going to occur when Jesus comes again. And so I invite you to be taking out your Bible and join us as we study from the Word of God this evening. And the first thing that we need to understand in, as we're talking about the coming and the second coming of Christ, that it is usually, there's a Greek word that is used, it is the Greek word parousia, or parousia. You can pronounce it a couple of different ways. But the second coming of Christ, or the second parousia of Christ, it means a personal and a visible appearance of Jesus. That's how it's used. It is always used in that way that would connote a, this idea of a personal, visible appearance and presence of a person. It's not always used in particular about the coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. It's just a normal Greek word that means coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, for instance, the Apostle Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 17, whenever he says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. He says, I rejoice over the coming of these individuals. And you get the fact that these are personal people that they know very well and that they come to Corinth. That's how Paul uses it. That they come they, and visit and they have made themselves very 
well known there. And when this Greek word is used in reference to Jesus and His second coming, it is oftentimes used about His second coming. There is one exception in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 16 where I do think it is speaking about Christ's first coming whenever He was born and when He became incarnate and came to this world. But every time, it still would imply that Jesus is visible, that He is going to personally come and that He is going to be seen and He is going to be heard. And the passage that we had in our reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in verse 15 when it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming or the parousia of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That this is obviously speaking about Christ's coming, where we will see Him, where we will hear His voice. And he says in verse 16, for an emphatic purpose, the Lord Himself will come. That we are going to have no doubt when Jesus returns, because it's going to be very clear, it's going to be very obvious, that it is Jesus who is seen and who is heard. And whenever I think we understand the significance behind this Greek word that is used here, the parousia, the second coming of Christ, this is going to help us understand and help us avoid some false positions that could be taken. Last week we looked at this new creation theology, and that's one error that I believe is out there that our brethren are being exposed to but there are other things that we have probably heard about. Premillennialism, for instance, and the dispensational premillennialism. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what our friends and denominations that would accept premillennialism, that Jesus is going to return not just once, but twice in His second coming. So there's kind of a two-stage return is what they would teach and what they would say. And that the first coming of Christ in His second coming. It's part A, part B. Let's go with that. In the second coming, part A, it's whenever there's the rapture that has taken place. And that's a secret, quiet, invisible coming of Jesus. But He comes in that moment. And He snatches those people away and then you have the uh, you know, driverless cars and things like that that take place, as you've probably seen depicted in movies and things of that nature. That That's the first stage in Jesus' second coming. But what they have there is that it's an invisible coming. It's an invisible appearance of Jesus. Which makes no sense in how that word is used in the Greek New Testament. That he's speaking about this second visible coming of Christ. It can't be an invisible second coming. It also, I think, would help us avoid going to the hyper-preterist explanations of Jesus' second coming, there are brethren who uh, believe that every single prophecy in the Bible has been fulfilled. And I can think of one that hasn't. Jesus' second coming. But they would argue with you or me on that contention. And they would say that every prophecy in the Bible has been fulfilled, including Jesus' second coming. And you might be thinking, how do they say that? 
How would they argue that? And what they would argue is that in AD 70, Jesus returned nearly 2,000 years ago in the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was destroyed and the destruction of the temple and all those things that occurred in AD 70, that Jesus came representatively through Titus and the Roman armies. You might be thinking, that's a wild one. I've never heard of that one. And it's, but it is something that is certainly true that they believe and they argue. I, don't, I believe it to be a false position, but they argue that. I'm not misrepresenting them in that. They argue that Jesus returned in AD 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem through Titus and the Roman army. And when we understand how this term is used, the second parousia of Christ, the second coming. It is a visible and personal return of Jesus. And when we understand that term, it undermines the whole presupposition that Jesus came representatively through someone else. It undermines the premillennial dispensational thought that Jesus' second coming is going to happen in two stages. And so there is an importance in understanding how this term is used when we're talking about Jesus' second coming. We're talking about when He is going to be seen with the eye. When every eye will see Him and when He will be heard. When He shouts and descends from heaven with the voice of the archangel. We are going to know when Jesus returns. There's not going to be any question about it. And so that's the first fundamental point that we need to understand about Jesus' second coming, it's going to be a personal coming when He is going to be visible to us. But then the second thing that I want us to think about is that what will happen when Jesus returns is that there is going to be a resurrection. There's going to be the resurrection of the dead. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John in John chapter 5. In John the fifth chapter, as Jesus was teaching on this occasion. He began teaching in John chapter 5 and in verse 28. He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Notice that Jesus, He says that there is an hour that is coming, that He is speaking of something that has not yet come. This is something that is in the future. And He says, do not marvel at this. There is something that's going to happen in the future in which all who are in the tomb, those who are dead, will hear His voice. That may seem like an odd statement. How does a dead person hear something? But that's going to demonstrate the power of God in Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he says in verse 29, they are going to come forth from the tomb. And those who did good, they are going to go unto a resurrection of eternal life. Those who did evil are going to go unto a resurrection of judgment, of doom and judgment and destruction. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, as He was spending the last week of His life in Jerusalem and as He was teaching and engaging in public discourse and debate among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees came to Him. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 22. And in verse 23, 
Matthew records for us. He says, On that day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned Him. So the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. Okay? And Jesus engages with them. They present this scenario to Him. Perhaps you'll remember that they say, alright, Jesus, if you believe in this resurrection of the dead, there's this practice under the Old Testament, leveret marriage, where if a brother, he is married to this woman, and then if he dies, the next in line, he takes his sister-in-law to be his wife. And he goes down, they say, alright, after seven brothers, and they all die, Who's is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, there is no marriage in the resurrection. In verse 30, uh, He says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so He says, this is really kind of a, a non sequitur. This doesn't really apply. First off. But then what he really begins in verse 29 is more of a scathing rebuke before he actually answers the question. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. I want you to notice those words and what Jesus is saying. And if you're denying the resurrection of the dead, like you do, that's your whole presupposition to this case that you think you have gotten me on. He says that this just demonstrates first of all your ignorance of the Scriptures and second of all it it shows your lack of faith in God's power and what God is capable of doing. And so the Apostle Paul, he describes this resurrection of the dead that will take place in the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. There is a passage of Scripture where you get sort of a crash course on what is going to take place at the second coming of Christ and this bodily resurrection that takes place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's the passage to go to and study. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus or the Apostle Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ, beginning at about verse 20. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since a man by a man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at His coming. That's the Greek word parousia again. And so Paul, he goes on, he's saying that just as Adam brought forth death into the world, Jesus through His resurrection has brought forth life. And he continues on as he goes throughout this chapter. In verse 35, Paul begins to anticipate some of the questions that someone might ask. You know, Paul, this seems kind of strange. You're talking about bodies being raised and people coming back to life. How how are the dead raised, first off? How does that happen? That's the first question, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And Paul says, it's by the power of God. It's just in the same way as what Jesus said. That if you are denying the Scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. 
It's by God's redemptive power. That's why Paul is able to describe this in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 23, that he describes this bodily resurrection as the redemption of our body. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, when he says not only this, but we also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The dead are raised. It's going to be the redemption of the body. That God is concerned about redeeming the whole of man, not just a certain part of him, not just his soul or his spirit, but also his body as well. And so the future resurrection that Paul is defending, that Jesus defends, it is a bodily resurrection. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 35, notice what Paul says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And his answer to that is, it's by God's power that the dead are raised. And with what kind of body do they come? What kind of body is it going to be, Paul? You know, I think that's something that is just implicit throughout this text. Is that the resurrection, when we just, by defining this idea of what the resurrection is, it implies a body. And they don't say, well, is there going to be a body? That's not the question, is it? The question is, what kind of body do they come? In that question itself, it implies that there is a body. And what Paul does, he goes through and he argues that everybody has a body and it's suited for the appropriate realm that they live in. In verse 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow... You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. That what Paul is trying to get us to see and what should probably go without saying, but for clarity's sake, he says it anyway, that the bodily resurrection is going to be a resurrection of the body. And that whenever you are raised, when we are raised, it's going to be for a body that is suited for the realm that we are going to live in. We, I, we don't have a body like a fish, do we? Because we don't live in water. So our body differs from that of a fish. We, as human beings, are not birds. And so we have a different kind of body than a bird does. A bird has a body that will give it flight so it can fly. We don't have that ability. Our body differs in that. 
And you think about this, it's like the seed that he describes there, that the seed goes into the ground, and whenever you plant a seed, if, you're, if you plant a corn seed into the ground, you think about what comes out of that seed. The great corn stalk, right? That stalk, it came from the seed, didn't it? Now, it transforms, doesn't it? It doesn't look exactly like that seed. It has undergone a transformation. But it still came from that seed that went into the ground, didn't it? And that's what Paul is trying to get us to see, is that's what the resurrection of the dead is going to be like. I don't know what the body is going to look like. I don't know exactly what it, how it will function and how it will be different from our bodies here. But it will be the body that goes into the tomb is going to be raised. It's going to be transformed. That's what Paul wants us to understand here. We, don't, we may not understand all the mechanics and the what's and the how's and all those kinds of things. But what he wants us to see is that there's going to be this dramatic transformation of the body. In verse 42, Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And the way that Paul is using the term spiritual there, it's not saying it's going to be like this bodiless shape or something that is just going to be spirit or mist or something like Casper. But it's going to be a body suited for the spiritual heavenly realm. Notice as you continue reading in verse 46, he says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. Earthy. The second man is from heaven. And so he's talking about where this body is going to be suited for, the realm that it will be suited for. And he continues on in verse 52, that this will take place in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You think about the metamorphosis that a butterfly undergoes. And it goes from the stage of being a caterpillar and it puts itself in a cocoon and then it becomes a beautiful butterfly. And there is this metamorphosis, there's this transformation. But you know what is interesting? You see the caterpillar become something different. And yet there's still continuity, isn't there? There's still similarity because it was the same caterpillar that became a butterfly. It wasn't that it became something altogether completely different. There's still, it was still that same caterpillar that is now a butterfly. And that's what in a very small way, will be the kind of transformation that we all undergo when we are raised. Our body will be raised. It may not all look the same. It may not function the same. But it's going to be a body. And it's going to be the body that 
we have now that is changed. It's going to be raised from the dead. And it's going to be a body that is then suited for the heavenly and the spiritual realm. And this is all a demonstration of God's great power. And our bodies as they presently are, they are suited for the earthly realm. But in the future resurrection, it's going to be suited for the heavenly and the spiritual realm. That's what Paul is trying to help us understand here. And it's going to be a bodily resurrection. But it's going to be one where our body is changed and transformed so that we can dwell in eternity with God. And so he wants us to see at the end of this chapter, in verse 54, he says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And in the resurrection, at the end, when Jesus returns, all of this is going to take place when that last trump sounds at the second parousia of Christ. Sin has been defeated. Death is going to be defeated as well. The down payment of that or the guarantee of that is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have all made the good confession that we believe that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. And if God can do it with Jesus, then why can He not do it with you and me? We may think, how is He able to do that? For me, it's a very simple solution. And if God can form dust from the earth and shape it in the form of a man and breathe life into it, if He can give it life, and animation one time, then why can He not do it a second time? And what He concludes is in verse 54 and 55 is that death is swallowed up in victory. It is overwhelmed by the victory that we find in Jesus Christ. And that death, there is no victory. There is no sting for death. However, you take away this idea of the bodily resurrection, if you remove that from the Gospel, if you remove that idea from the fact that this is what God has said is going to happen, then that is putting a fracture in the whole foundation of Christianity and our faith. Just earlier in the chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 17, Paul has been dealing with this idea that if you're going to not believe in, the, in this idea of a resurrection, then you don't have any kind of way to explain the resurrection of Jesus. And if, there, if it's impossible for a resurrection to happen, period, then you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and at least be consistent. And so what he says in verse 17 is, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And so when Paul says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, 
if we take away this idea of a bodily resurrection, then we are still in our sins. And death still has a sting. It still has power and dominion if there is no resurrection. And if we are lost in our sins because Christ was not raised, then we are left without any hope of salvation. And so this idea of a bodily resurrection, it's a demonstration of God's great power and how He is going to conquer and have victory over sin and death, which will lead to the ultimate and complete demise of Satan himself. And so there's going to be the great the resurrection from the dead, but then there's going to be the great ascension that is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that Paul is describing here to the church at Thessalonica that after we are raised from the dead, we will go to meet the Lord in the air. It's a very encouraging passage that he's trying to offer hope and comfort for those who's, who are reckoning with the fact that they have lost people. They have lost brothers and sisters in Christ. They have lost family members. There might be some grieving that they are doing, but he says... And we don't have to grieve as the rest do who have no hope. Because we have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of a resurrection. And he says in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. What I love about this passage of Scripture is that we follow Jesus, don't we? You think about that. That Jesus, He came to this earth And He went to the cross and He died and He was raised. But even if we just stop the story there at His resurrection, that's still not the final end of Jesus' life and experiences here on earth, is it? The fact is, in Acts chapter 1, we are told that He ascended back into heaven. And I think this is what Paul is trying to get us to see is that we ourselves will ascend to heaven. Last week as we were looking and critiquing some of the things about new creation theology and the fact that they believe that this world is going to continue in existence and it's just going to be transformed and changed and renewed and those kinds of things. They put a lot of emphasis on the fact that God is a God who comes down and descends. And we talked about that this morning with the Incarnation, that Jesus was fully man. No one denies that. But the fact is, Jesus did not remain on this earth. He ascended back to the Father so that we could go to the Father. 
And when we ascend and meet the Lord in the air, we are going to be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord for eternity at that point. And we need to be watching and waiting for that great and notable day. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 2, Paul he continues this discussion and he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You know those thieves, they don't tell you when they're coming, do they? They don't give you an advanced warning of when they're going to be there. We have to be watching and waiting because we don't know when He will come. And so we cannot afford to let our guard down so that we will be surprised when, it, when He comes again. In verse 4, Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Again in verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. That we need to be watching and waiting. We cannot let our guard down. That we must always be looking and watching for the Lord's second coming. And there's not going to be a sign that we can look to and say, ah, it's getting close. Just like that thief, he doesn't give you a note that says, hey, I'm going to be at your house at this time, so be watching and be ready for me. That's not what a thief does. There's not going to be a sign or a warning of when Jesus is about to come. And once we leave this world, once we ascend to meet the Lord in the air, the passage that we looked at in some detail last week in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 10, we find out that this world is going to be destroyed by fire. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt? with intense heat. And this world is going to be burned up. That becomes the very point that Peter is trying to help us see. And it is going to be destroyed. There's not going to be anything left. But then what Paul does and what Peter does, they say because of that, this isn't just Theoretical. This isn't just something that we talk about because it's exciting or exhilarating. The reason that we talk about things that pertain to the end, there's a very significant purpose. It's because we have the obligation to be ready. And we need to get our life in order. And Peter says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, 
since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That our obligation is to live right before God. Whenever we talk about things pertaining to the end, it is about not just theory, not just fascination. It's about helping us understand the importance of how you live your life day to day. So that you are prepared for when Jesus comes again. So that you can meet the Lord in the air. Because when Jesus comes, we are going to stand before Him in judgment. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation, the 20th chapter. John, he writes about the vision that he sees. This is in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. When Jesus comes again, He is going to take us and then we will be judged by Him. Christ is going to sit on that great white throne that is pictured where all people are going to stand before Him. No one is going to escape. And I love the description in verse 11 where it said, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. That there is not going to be anyone who is able to escape that judgment. Even though they may not want to be judged. There's going to be no escape. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, Christ's authority as the Son of God is going to be on full display for everyone to see. In Acts the 17th chapter, the Apostle Paul, as he was in the city of Athens and he was preaching the Sermon on Mars Hill. In Acts chapter 17 and in verse 31, a passage I'm sure many of us are familiar with when Paul, he says that we all have to repent. Everyone, everywhere must repent. In verse 31, he says why you need to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That Jesus is going to be the one who judges. And we are going to see that He is the perfect judge. And He is going to stand, or we're going to stand before Him. We'll have to give an account for the things that we have done in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The things that you have done in this life, good or bad, it's going to be judged. You will have to give an account and a defense before Christ. We are going to be judged according to our deeds. The things that we do. How we live our life. It's going to be brought open. It's going to be made known. We are going to have to give an account for it. And if your name is not found to be in the book of life, And you are going to be found in a lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13 it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But for those whose names are in the book of life, there's another picture that follows this up in verse 21 or chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This new city, this new dwelling place, the church in its glorified state in heaven, to be in the presence of God before Him, for all of eternity. In chapter 22, he goes on in verse 1, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. For we will be in the presence of God before His throne, Worshiping and serving Him, dwelling with Him for eternity in the true new heavens and the true new earth. For those whose names are in the book of life, there is great reward. There is eternal life that is promised. Dwell with God before His throne for all of eternity. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 22, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Can you imagine that great day? When you will be able to see God's face. You think about what that's associated with Throughout the Old Testament, 
seeing God's face was viewed as a death sentence, wasn't it? And there are a few exceptions in the, in the Old Testament that they got to see God, but not in His fullness and His majesty, and they were surprised that they got to continue to live, right? They never saw His fullness and His complete majesty. But when we are in heaven, that whole notion of seeing God's face and being associated with death, that's completely removed. Because that's what life really is. That's what eternal life is all about. It's being with God in perfect union and fellowship with Him. Being in His eternal presence. But what we need to be sure is that we are ready for that day when Jesus returns. And when He returns, will He bring us into the eternal kingdom of heaven? And that's going to be a great and a wonderful day when we will be united with God and Jesus Christ to dwell with them for all of eternity. And you don't want to miss that day. And so will you make sure your life is ready? Tonight, if you're not a child of God, we want you to become a Christian. We encourage you to become His child. Come in obedience to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are not living right, you need God's mercy and His grace, and salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, that is made available to you. We would encourage you and we would invite you to come to Him. Maybe it is that you have not been living right. and You've already become a Christian, but you've stumbled. Maybe you have faltered and you've given in to temptation and you to repent and come back to Him. Maybe you're weak and you're struggling and you need the prayers of the brethren. We're here for you. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you in whatever way we possibly can. We want you to be ready for that great day. Are you ready? If we can help you in some way tonight, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?